Hi, this is Keith Kefchin, and you're listening to Dollars and Drivers, a podcast that allows leaders an outlet to discuss what drives them and their distinct way of succeeding in life and business. Welcome to another episode of Dollars and Drivers. Today, we're going to be speaking with Kevin Henry. It was a real treat to talk to Kevin, who runs Human Resources for Extended Stay America, on a number of issues, most importantly about how he has evolved and how one must evolve as they become leaders in the industry. And he really talked about uh, people keeping him on the right path. And that was extremely important uh, to uh, his development at a young age. We also have a bonus section. Uh, I was talking to Kevin, who's a person of color, about the issues of social justice that are so prevalent uh, in today's conversation. And he really talked about taking the lead, accountability, and how he owns the HR systems. And because of that, he can really do some really important things when it comes to education. And I think uh, listeners will find it very enlightening Uh, maybe even more so than some of the issues on leadership. So uh, again, without further ado, Kevin Henry. I mean, if you could start maybe by, you know, talking about the driving forces uh, that have really led to your personal and professional success. That's Dollars and Drivers, the name of the podcast. So if we could maybe start there, if you think back, what were those driving forces? Sure. No, I appreciate the... uh... The invitation. I'm humbled and honored um, to participate, and um, that's a terrific question. You know, I'd start by saying those those driving forces have probably changed, you know, over the years, and they've evolved as I've evolved. And so, if you were talking to you know twenty something year old Kevin, you'd probably get an answer that's a little different than fifty something year old Kevin. Um, But, you know, er earlier on, in fact, I was having this conversation with my younger son, um, who is a freshman in college. And I said, his name's Taylor. I said, Taylor, you know, my goal when I was graduating from uh, from college, from Cornell, was to it it was an economic goal. Surprise. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, but my goal was to always make twice my age. And I figured if I could do that, you know, then I'd be doing pretty good. And um, I remember, you know, my starting salary working for um, Amico wasn't quite twice my age at the time, probably one and a half or probably, you know, one, yeah, probably one and a half times my age. And I said, you know, that's a pretty good start. And if I can get to twice my age and over the years, I'm probably doing okay. And, and so early on, my driver was economic security and self-sufficiency. And as I've gotten older with children of my own and a family of my own, and I've been very fortunate, very blessed that I've ascended into positions of impact and influence. You know, really, my drivers now are my family, you know, my, my own faith perspective. And uh, related to that is, is my desire to be a good steward of the things that I've been put in charge of, those folks that I've had the honor and privilege of being able to influence either through formal or informal relationships. And so, you know, I was talking to a CEO of another organization, another industry about a month or so ago, and we got on the topic of legacy. And um, I can't lay claim to this quote. Uh, It it really stuck with me. And and so I'll share it. And, And the quote was legacy 
it's not what you leave someone, it's what you leave in someone. And so as, again, I'm, you know, not quite rounding the corner in my career. I, I think I've still got a lot of runway left, but you become a little more reflective. And sure. it, it really is about being a good steward, you know, of, of the things you've been put in charge of and, you know, trying to leave stuff better than you found it and leave a legacy in people. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly Maslow's hierarchy mm -hmm. uh, when I think back when I was a young kid, uh, it was really the same thing. It's like, man, I just want to be off on my own yep. and not uh, pawning off my parents uh, <laughs> in some way and have some independence. But maybe that's it, there's more to it than just what you need. It's also what you want to give. So I, I, I think we talk about those things uh, throughout and the people I've been talking to are in a reflective uh, state. Uh, mm -hmm. They tend to be you know, leaders of our industry like yourself. Uh, so that's not uncommon. But, you know, for the younger people, how did you get on the right path? You obviously have had a stellar career. You've made good choices. But how, how did you get on the right path in the first place and not get no. knocked off? No, I, I appreciate that, Keith. And, and thank you, you know, for that feedback. You know, I, I would say it probably started with, with just having a, a great support system, you know, and 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 folks that, that kept me on the straight and narrow. And, you know, with that, people who expressed very clear expectations of me. You know, I, I grew up in New York and starting with my parent mm -hmm. uh, who said, you know, you're, you're going to go to college. You're going to do these things. You know, you're going to work hard. You're, you're going to aspire to get good grades. Um, you're going to put in the work that's necessary to get the desired result. And so very clear expectations of me. Um, I also remember growing up, I was having this conversation with a buddy not long ago, um, you know, because I, I, I had some folks that didn't have the same aspirations that I did, you know, that I used to hang out with. And you'd, you'd get into um, what I'll call kind of the, the trials and tribulations and the mischief of our youth. And, and I remember, yes. you know, talking to a couple of the guys and, and even reflecting now that, um, you know, they would oftentimes send me home and, and they would say, look, dude, you know, you, you got to go study. You got to go do your homework. And, and, and I was like, but, but you guys aren't going to study. You're not going to do your homework. And they realized even back then that I had a, I had a different trajectory than they did. And, you know, they were maybe going to get into something they shouldn't and didn't want me to be a part of it because <laughs> I had other things that I was supposed to do. And so, you know, a great support system, whether it was my family, whether it was my friends, and then, you know, just clear expectations that were communicated um, that, that I really personally aspired to want to live up to and, um, you know, not disappoint those people that put such great faith in me. Is there, from a business perspective, was there an individual mentor, someone in particular that uh, had an influence or an impact on you? I get the parents and the, that support system growing up, but anyone in business that you can point to that said, boy, that person really had a distinct influence on my success? Yeah, no, great, great question. I've, I've again, I've been very, very fortunate. I've had a bunch of folks that have really taken my best interest to heart you know, and it poured into me over the years. Um, just a, a quick aside, you know, I, I was a 19, 20 year old intern working for Amico Corporation early, early, early on in my career. It was my first kind of real job. And I was working in Chicago. So I'm away from home, you know, in a corporate office. Um, I think 
the, the only access to credit that I had at the time was a JC Penney's credit card that they gave everybody in college. And I, I went and I bought, uh, you know, two suits, maybe three, um, a brown suit, a gray suit and a blue suit. And, you know, I bought enough dress shirts that I could interchange the shirts and I could mix and match the blazer and the slacks. So I could probably get, you know, six or seven outfits out of these three suits. And I go to work and um, you, you remember when you would buy a new suit, I guess it's the same, you know, today, there were the tags that were on the, you know, the, the pants and the jackets. And if you weren't careful, you could miss taking some of the tags off, um, especially the ones that were, you know, behind that back belt loop that you couldn't see. And so I'm in the office, I'm having a conversation with a, a senior vice president, Namico, and he motions to me. To, to come closer. And so I come closer and emotions, no, come even closer. And I'm thinking, what, what's up with this? Is this what corporate America is like? Right. And, and so I, I, I move closer to him and he grabs a letter opener and he motions to me to turn around. So I turn around. Next thing I know, he was, you know, detaching one of those little tags that I had obviously forgotten to take off of the back of my, my trousers. And so, you know, people like that, quite frankly, mm-hmm. that, you know, some people poured into me, you know, how, how do you do a good PowerPoint? And, you know, how do you make your points succinctly, you know, in a, in a meeting that's important? And then some people poured into me, this is how you should dress. This is how you should wear your hair. You know, this is the, the culture of work and the culture of business. And so, again, I've been really fortunate, you know, that I've had people playing multiple roles for me really throughout my life. And even, you know, to today, just this morning, I was having a conversation with somebody and it was a really rich discussion. And when we were done, and this is somebody I've known for 40 years, when we were done, I I said to him, I said, look, man, I I said, that was, that was good for my soul. Um, and, And I said, I just, I just appreciate it. And you know this. I mean, when, when you're in business and when you're in a role that's a highly visible role where you're senior and therefore people assume you know everything and you're right about everything, you need those safe havens, right? Yeah. Where, where you can be um, vulnerable, where you can be honest, you can be open, and you can be in a no-judgment zone or judgment-free zone. I'm very fortunate. Again, I've, I've had lots of folks in my life that... Um, have played that role for me. Yeah. Well, we found, as you probably know, because I think you've read my book with Dr. Jim and, and asking for help and having a, a, some set of advisors that you can go to was critical because it can be very lonely when you're supposed to have all the answers. Uh, and if you can't go anywhere to bounce things off, besides maybe a spouse, uh, it can it can be difficult to keep yourself you know, current, relevant, sharp. So I get that. One of the things, we're actually writing a second book and we're going to call it The Way because I think a lot of people talk great at 30,000 feet. What's your mission? What's your value set? What do you stand for? These kind of things that are maybe easy to say and hard to do. And we're trying to figure out, is there a a playbook? Is there a way of doing business that is Kevin Henry? Do you have a set of, of standards or how do you go about, you know, putting this bigger, broader idea into place? 
Again, another great question. I, I think that's going to be a terrific book. Put me on the on the pre-order list, please, because okay. I, I definitely want to take a look at that. You know, I, I would say, you know, for for the listeners, you know, my perspective is formed by 30 years of experience across multiple industries and, you know, a bunch of what people might refer to, quote unquote, as academy companies. And I know you worked at Coke. And so, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Well, you know, I, I worked at, at Pepsi and Coke. I think I'm one of the few folks that know both formats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was lost and then I got found. I won't mm -hmm. tell you which is which. Okay. And, um, but in terms of, you know, my playbook, I, I'd say, you know, first and foremost, understand your situation, you know, ground in your facts. What's your context? Be rooted in the reality of the situation. Um you know, then very quickly define a, a vision that you want to pursue and then the specific objectives that you'll need to execute against in order to get there. So, you know, what, what's this, you know, kind of uh, big, hairy, audacious goal that you want to accomplish? And then what are the, the, the series of things that need to occur in what sequence um, in order for you to begin to make progress against that realization or the realization of that vision? It's you know, the old adage, the, the easiest way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And so what do those bites need to be? Um, then, you know, I've, I've always been very, very, very focused on relationships and the importance of relationships. And so identify and cultivate those relationships that matter and, you know, build a coalition of sorts along the way. And, and so everybody matters. But, you know, you know, the honesty is some people matter more. And, you know, understand that 80-20 rule because you can't be all things to all people. And so figure out, you know, who are the enablers and potentially who are the inhibitors or the obstacles, mm -hmm. you know, that will either help you or potentially keep you from accomplishing those objectives, build those relationships and then establish a coalition of people to help you along the way. Measure and display results, right? And and ultimately, what gets measured is what gets done. And so as you've set these objectives, how do you define success? And then how do you keep score? And then make sure you're keeping score. And then, you know, lastly, celebrate your wins, learn from losses, you know, because there are always going to be wins and losses, and carry on toward the realization of your objectives and goals. You know, grow, we may have talked about this before, but, you know, growing up in New York, I, I played baseball, I'm a Yankee fan. And um, the thing about baseball is, you know, you can strike out um, six out of 10 times at bat, get on base the other four times, and you're still going to the Hall of Fame. You're still going to Cooperstown. And, and so, you know, you're not always going to hit the ball. You're not going to bat a thousand. Nobody does. You shouldn't try to. But you got to get up to the plate. You got to take your cuts. Um, and, you know, when you when you miss a pitch, you got to learn why you missed it and then practice to make sure you don't miss the same pitch again. Um, I love sports analogies, too, as you know, and I think about, let's say, in football, Brady and Belichick, I've used them as mm -hmm. examples, the quote unquote patriot way. So that's got got me thinking. I mean, everyone in the NFL has the same goal, win a Super Bowl, be a champion. So what's the difference between New England, let's say the, the Jets? I mean, you have a one organization, same goals. Same everything else, same budget, generally speaking, and one is a constant winner and the other one's a constant loser. How, how do you see that as possible? How, how does that happen? Growing up a Jets fan, it is tough to be a Jets fan right now, especially this season. I think it has to do with culture. You know, what kind of a culture is, is established? What's the tone at the top? 
Um, and what's the commitment to success? You know, the one thing about the Patriots is, you know, early on, they weren't immediately successful. There's a system that exists there that, again, you know, Belichick and, and, and Brady put in place uh, and others over the years where they, they brought people onto the team that fit the culture and fit the system. Those folks who were maybe on the team and didn't fit the culture or fit the system, they weren't on the team for long. And the team and the success of the team was infinitely more important than the success of any one individual. And, and that gets back to culture, you know, where uh, it, it was kind of a long-term view. It was a commitment to the realization of those goals and objectives. You know, as we talked about a few minutes ago, they built a coalition that was uh, collaboratively, uniformly, and um, unequivocally dedicated to the success of the franchise. And then they went out and they executed. You know, which is another uh, critical ingredient, which is, you know, nothing happens overnight. You know, when I think of the book uh, Outliers, 10,000 rule, um, you have to put in the work uh, in, in order to be better than you otherwise would be and, and to be better than the folks that you're competing with. Um, you, you have to put in the work. That's how you get results and you get results over time. You're in HR. In fact, one of the few senior HR folks I'm talking to as part of this. I, I'd like your your insights on how you take finite dollars, finite resources, and pay a group of people. Uh, the whole you know CEO pay these days is so outlandish. It's X number of times. You're even in public companies having to report. How many times the average salary is like the Japanese do? I, I don't know if that has any weight uh, at all, but people are doing it as the SEC is required. How do you folks go about putting a dollar value on performance or a dollar value on what someone does? Yeah, no, that, that's a terrific question. And there's a bit of science with an overlay of art, you know, that, that goes into those determinations. You know, the science is, um, Getting the facts, understanding you know what the market data uh, would suggest is competitive because those are kind of table stakes, right? If, if you want to be able to acquire and and retain and um, motivate the level of talent that um, you might want in particular roles, and then the art uh, in my mind comes down to what kind of behaviors do you want to drive, and how do you want to reconcile goals and objectives against the same goals and objectives of other constituents. There may be different elements or components of pay. You know, some of it is obviously base pay. Some of it might be short-term in nature. Some of it long-term in nature. You know, where you you put the focus on short-term and longer-term performance and how you want to recognize and reward that performance, I think that's where the art comes into play. You know, and, and we're a public company. And so it's important, certainly long-term, that um, the compensation of the most senior folks in the organization, that it's aligned with the interest of shareholders. Now, for somebody whose job is such that they may not have a direct impact on the long-term performance of the company, it really doesn't make that much sense to have a large portion of their comp aligned you know, with long-term interest. Uh, because then there's a short-term disconnect if I'm the person who's receiving you know, that compensation. And, and then in terms of absolute you know, kind of dollars. Uh, I think a lot of that is, is a function of, you know, what the market says it's willing to pay for certain skills, certain experiences, and then ultimately certain results. And, and so the, you know, the market is ultimately the great um, 
kind of equalizer, you know, across all of those things. So getting facts and, you know, getting information, making sure that people are, are compensated to deliver uh, behaviors that will drive expected results, and then making sure that those compensation designs are aligned with the interests of key stakeholders. Yeah, fair enough. Appreciate that. I tend to uh, get into interesting discussions on the internet uh, about how can you rationalize wealth like what Jeff Bezos has, mm-hmm. and then you know minimum wage at seven dollars and fifty cents or whatever it is. It's not an easy discussion. Uh, yep. Because you see both sides of it. My hope was always you try and get all boats to rise, uh, but not so simple in the environment that we've set. You know, it's just as an aside, again, I, my my college freshman who's in the management school at Boston College, just the day before yesterday, we were having a conversation. He's got a uh, course he's taking. It's called Portico, but it's basically a business ethics class. And every month he's got to find... Um, some number of Wall Street Journal articles and, you know, provide a reflection. Them. And so the reflection, just coincidentally, you know, from the other day was uh, around Amazon and their recent announcement that they're going to, I think, invest another $50 million in frontline employee bonuses uh, in the month of December. Yeah, and, you know, and, and so he and I had a, a really good conversation because I certainly, I wear kind of a corporate hat and then he wears the, you know, the hat of a, of a 19 year old in college. So there's a difference in generational perspective and, um, you know, to your point of view of, of Amazon and, and what they are and what they should be and so on and so forth. And, and I said, you know, a, a lot of it is just a matter of perspective. I said on its face, you know, $50 million is a lot of money. I said, you put that against the context of of profits generated in the same month, I, I said, maybe you have a different perspective. I said, you know, on, again, on the one hand, you, you've got these frontline employees who are essential, and they should certainly get something, but is that enough? And and so you, you do get into those debates and discussions. And, you know, at the end of the day, my guiding principle has always been, you, you try to make the best decisions you can you know, that are value-based, that connect with your um, kind of mission and purpose as an organization and as an individual, and you you try to lead as well as you possibly can. You know, you, you're a lot smarter on Tuesday about the Sunday and Monday football games than you were while they were being played. And so oftentimes it's a look in the rear view, not a look in the windshield. Um, and, and I also, it, you know, it's kind of like my view around exercise um, doing something is better than doing nothing. And, um, you know, you could debate whether you've done enough, but you got to start someplace and, you know, then, then you got to build from there. And so it, it's an interesting debate, you know, to your point. And you have people that are on both sides of the, you know, of, of the argument and a little bit of the chicken or the egg. Um, in, in that case, you know, kudos to Amazon for doing something. And um, time will tell whether or not it was enough. How do you view competitors, competition in general? I assume it sounds corny, but you guys have a war room. Senior execs get together and talk about the business and strategy and how to execute and all the things we just talked about. But how do you view your competitors? How do they impact your decision making? Well, you know, first off, um, and I think competition is a wonderful thing. 
because it, it, you know, raises all tides, you know, when it works the way that it should. You know, we certainly respect our competitors immensely, whether we're chasing them or, or whether they're chasing us. And there's a lot of, you know, intelligence that you can glean from your competitors. If you're uh, humble enough and your ego, you know, doesn't get in the way, you can, you can actually learn a lot if you're paying attention. And so personally, I mean, I view uh, our, our competitors very appreciatively. Um, they, they keep the stakes high, you know, and they force us to always improve. I mean, particularly in a business like mine, I mean, we're, we're a kind of a commodity. And there are lots of folks that offer what we offer to the marketplace. We're obviously a hotel uh, lodging company. There are lots of other places that people can stay. And, and so it keeps us on our A game. It, you know, it keeps us um, thinking uh, and it keeps us focused on our customer. You know, and, and in this case, it's our guest. And so uh, competition is good, keeps everybody's game sharp, and uh, ultimately it benefits the market, you know, which I think is terrific. My last question, you said legacy. I'm using a term here about how do you build a dynasty, whether it's the Patriots, the Packers in football, or whoever it is, uh, whatever sport or, or business endeavor. Why can some people build a dynasty, others can't? What do you think the secret sauce is? And I'd be remiss again, Yankee fans would criticize if I didn't add the Yankees to that long list of dynasties there. Yankees and Islanders, I'm a Long Islander. You know, I think, you know, focus on excellence and execution. Stay humble, stay hungry. Oftentimes when an individual or an organization reaches what they believe to be the pinnacle of success, they rest on their laurels, you know, or they, they look and they say, wow, I, you know, I, I outpaced you by this much. You know, therefore, I can exhale and I can relax. I was reading something the other day and they were referencing Kobe Bryant, right? And, and, and this Mamba mentality. And I forgot who the player was, but, uh, and I hope I don't butcher the story too badly. They were visiting LA, so they were in town. Uh, they went to the gym to do a shoot around and Kobe was in the gym. And, you know, by the looks of him, you could tell he had been in the gym for a while. He was, you know, perspiring and everything. And the person left went and showered up, went and did whatever they were going to do, came back to the gym and Kobe was still in the gym. And, you know, then they went out and they played the next day and Kobe did what Kobe does, you know, probably scored 30 plus. And years later, this person in, in this same story was talking to Kobe and reflected on that and said, man, you know, what in the world? You know, how long do you work out? And um, he said, well, on that particular day, I knew you were going to come back to the gym to see if I was still there. And so I made sure I was still there when you came back and checked on me. And um, he said, and I knew that would have an immeasurable impact on, you know, your headspace. And I'd be able to go out and do what I wanted to do against you the next day in the game. And um, that's a dynasty. That's a mentality. You know, it's being focused on being excellent. It's doing what others won't do, even even when you may actually think you don't have to do it. And, you know, maintaining your edge, putting in more work than they do, more often than they do to maintain your edge and not, you know, not resting on your laurel and, and recognizing how fleeting success is uh, and how difficult it is to obtain. Hey, listeners, this is the bonus section I talked about before where Kevin talks about social justice and some of the programs and education that he's putting in place to talk about these very sensitive issues. I think, again, you'll find it uh, very enlightening.
as a person of color at the senior levels, what has been going on in your mind relative to the, the subject of today's society, Black Lives Matter? I'm just curious as to you know what someone in your position is thinking about relative to that, because it's hard for me to put myself in your shoes. It's great to have empathy. It isn't easy when you have no perspective, as you've said. So I'm just curious what you're, what you're thinking about. Are there any nuggets, anything that you would want to share or could share with people? Yeah, no, Keith, I, I appreciate the question. You know, what I'm doing as, you know, as a person of color, black person, and I'm leading right now. And, and I'm at the board level. I'm driving conversations. I'm, I'm exacting accountability. I'm expressing expectations. I'm in a little bit of a, a unique role because I'm, I, I run HR. And so I own all the systems, right, that hire, promote, determine yeah. comp, train, develop. And so I have a lot of latitude for influence. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm exerting all of that influence. At the same time, I'm, I'm educating. You know, I, I was I was having a, a conversation just as inside with a senior person that uh, let me ask you a question. I said, where do you and, you know, Mrs. Such and such, where do you guys sleep? And and there was dead silence. And like, what are you what are you talking about? Where do we sleep? I said, no, I'm serious. We're in your home. Where do you sleep? And and there was a pause. And then they said, you know, Kevin, I mean, we, we sleep in the master bedroom. And, and I said, ah, that's that's incredible. I said, that's where me and Mrs. Henry sleep. We sleep in our master bedroom. I said, do you know the etymology of the, the term and the phrase master bedroom where that comes from? And he said, no. I said, that, that, that comes from slavery. That comes from the plantation. I said, do you know what happened in the master bedroom? I said, nothing good. You know, I said, yeah. I said women were raped. I said, you know, they, they were impregnated. They were killed. They were maimed, all kinds of bad stuff. And, and, and I said, that's the perspective. I said, and when we talk about systemic inequities and when we talk about, you know, systemic oppression, um, that that has become so germane in, in our vernacular, we don't pay attention to it. I had his head spinning and I said, let me ask you another question. I said, <laughs> I said when, when somebody gets on your bad side, what happens to them? Pause, because he knew, you know, I was setting them up. I said, they get blacklisted. I said, they don't get purple listed or pink listed or yellow listed. They get black listed. I said, what's up with that? I said, that's a micro inequity, a microaggression. You know, and, and so as somebody, again, of color, what, what I'm doing is I'm educating. And, you know, the balance is I don't want to be the black guy that, you know, necessarily throws this on my shoulder. And I'm the only educator and, and, and advocator you know, in the organization. I, I, I want to create consciousness and, and accountability in others so that we can collectively try to solve for making things better. And, yeah. you know, it, it's not about making people feel badly, you know, but at the same time, it, it's also shining a little bit of a light on the fragility that that exists in in some populations that have been the majority populations and, and saying, you know, you, you can't get defensive, you know, you can't be offended, you can't, you know, ignore and, and, and you can't, you know, become aggressive towards it because that's not going to be productive. At the same time, you know, the, the communities that have been marginalized, 
you know, you, you, you have to, you have to be collaborative. You have to be productive. You have to be purposeful because otherwise, you know, you end up at impasse and you, you don't make any progress. And so I, I feel good about the work in this space that we're doing. Unfortunately, when, um, you know, when George Floyd was, was killed and that eight minutes or so of videotape, you know, was, was so distasteful to so many people. It was like, holy crap, this is happening. And the honesty is it's always happened. You just happened to see the video this time. And, you know, I, I was speaking with my CEO, uh, who's, you know, who's a terrific person, a great relationship with him. And, and he expressed an aha. And he said, you know, Kevin, you and I grew up the same way. You know, we, we grew up middle class. I mean, he's got an Ivy League education. I've got an Ivy League education, um, et cetera. He said, but, but it's dawned on me just how different your experience has been than mine. You know, and, and, and with all the, you know, all of the benefits that have been afforded to me personally, because I, I, mean, I had a great childhood, parents, both professional, educators, you know, great education, so on and so forth. And, and that's just real. And getting people to appreciate the fact that those differences are real and there's systemic uh, inequities, you know, that's that's where it all starts. And and I think, you know, purposefully and productively trying to determine uh, first step of a 12 step program is, you know, we got a problem now figuring out what do we do to solve for it? And, and how, how, do we would, how would you recommend even for someone like me? Because I, I mean, I consider us, you know, we're friends and mm-hmm. and so forth. but. How do I start this conversation with others? How do I start a conversation about this without being on the defensive or offensive for that matter? Just how, how do I get started? Yeah, no, I, Keith, I appreciate the, the question. You know, what, what I would say is, you know, a little bit of self-reflection and maybe each of us answering the question and our listeners answering the question um, and I'll, I'll focus on racism. And there are a lot of isms. There's sexism, racism, classism, you know, et cetera. But, you know, any any circumstance where there's a kind of a, a group in charge and then there's a group that's subservient to the group in charge, you know, creates an ism. And, and in charge may be because of critical mass. It may be because of power. It may be because of wealth, any number of things. So use racism just as the example and, and, and ask the question, are you not racist or are you anti-racist? Because I hear from people, you know, all the time, they're like, I, I'm not, I'm not a racist. And, and I go, no, you're not. But, but are you anti-racist? And what I mean by that is, are you using your resources, your access, your influence to dismantle systems that perpetuate, in this example, racism? And, and this, is, this is an example. I was having a conversation with a board member, and I, I just used this illustratively. And, and I said, and, and this isn't the case you know, in my shop. It, it's the case in a lot of places, though, where you, know, you, you, may, you may have to um, take certain uh, courses you know, in, in order to build certain skills and competencies that are a precursor to progression in somebody's career, right? Yeah, uh, not not unusual, and those courses, um, you know, they may only be offered in English. Now, a lot of communications are offered in English and Spanish, but you know, leadership development training typically is is offered in English, and it's an example of of something that might unintentionally, unconsciously, 
be creating bias. It may be a, again, a systemic barrier to progression for people who aren't as comfortable or as competent in English. And, and so if you look at it on the other side and you look at the yield and you say, well, I, I wonder why the folks who successfully um, navigate this process, which on its face is constructed in a way that is fair and equitable and open access to everyone, is yielding a result that represents and reflects bias. Well, it, it may be because systemically, that process is built in such a way that it, it's going to advantage some people and disadvantage other people. You know, again, I'm, I'm making this up, but if you layer onto that whole development process, the requirement to, to have a low handicap in golf, making that up. Well, now all of a sudden you, you've added another requirement and criteria that, that may have a bias yield on gender representation. You know, or, or sure. you could give any number of examples, but, but those are just systemic inequities. And so I, I asked people, back to the question you asked me, you know, are, are you not racist? Because people that design those systems or observe those systems, I, I'm not racist. I, everybody, you know, it, it's Darwinism. It, it's the salmon that swim upstream. Everybody has the same opportunity. But the honesty is not being racist is one thing. Being anti-racist is another thing, you know, where you'd say, no, that's a systemic inequity that we've got to dismantle and, you know, we, we've got to adjust and, and we've got to repair so that we don't end up with any unconscious bias in the yield. You know, so that that's where I'd start. And I mean, kudos to you for asking the question. And yeah. even that conversation, you know, if, if done the right way, it's not offensive to anybody. And, you know, folks, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a vegan and we were talking about veganism. And again, as a vegan, he is in the minority of the population. And so, you know, most of the time when he goes out to dinner, he can't find anything that satisfies his dietary requirement. And, and so you have, again, you know, racism, you have sexism, you have classism, and now you have veganism um, you know, as, as an example of a, a systemic inequity. And until he brought that to my uh, attention, you know, I would have said, well, I'm not, I'm not a racist or against vegans, but I'm, but I'm not, you know, anti, you know, veganism, um, because I'm not making sure that restaurants have broader menus to accommodate, you know, more, more distinct or selective palates. So it, it all starts with dialogue and keeping the defenses down and, you know, just being open. And because ultimately I think, you know, everybody's after the same thing, which is, um, you know, to to be supportive of each other and and to you know hopefully allow folks to be the best possible version they can of themselves without any obstructed uh, impediments. Yeah, I appreciate all that you've said and can internalize a lot of that, and hopefully it comes to help me in my own conversations. But thank you for your time. I look forward to dropping another episode of Dollars and Drivers with Kevin Henry. Thanks for the invitation. I'm humbled and it's always good to talk to you. I appreciate our friendship and best to you and your family. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Dollars and Drivers. Until next time, this is Keith Kefchitz. Thank you.